Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano, and we're excited about all the guests that we bring on the Tartan Talks podcast, but we're especially excited to have a conversation with the next one, David Welchel. David lives in Arkansas. He describes himself as semi-retired, and he's had a fascinating career going from the ag industry to becoming a Division One NCAA golf coach in a major university, and then going into golf course construction and design. David is a great storyteller, and we know that you're going to enjoy hearing about his career and some of his thoughts about what's going on in golf course architecture. But before we get going with David, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad they're supporting this podcast, and we're glad that David took some time to join us. Well, David, thanks for joining us. I can't believe it's taken us this long to get you onto the Tartan Talks podcast. I'm really excited about this. And the first thing I wanted to ask you is every time I see you, you de declare yourself as semi-retired. What is the semi-retired lifestyle like, David? Well, it's, it's, it's boring sometimes when I'm not working somewhere. And, uh, but it's, it, I play a lot of golf these days uh, as often as I can. Matter of fact, I'm going to go play this afternoon. But I, I spend a lot of time working around the house, helping the wife. She works full-time. She's been, during this uh, pandemic, she has been relegated to working from home since about March the 10th. She's a, an IT specialist with the Tyson Foods people. So she's been working from home. And to be honest, she likes doing that. So I take care of the house when I'm not playing golf or if I'm not traveling and working, which I have done very little of since uh, the 1st of March. Yeah, what is that like for somebody that has spent the better part of their career traveling all over the place to be uh, at home for such a long period of time. Sometimes it gets to be a little, little boring, to put it mildly. I, uh, I did go up to Wisconsin uh, the first of June. Uh, guys up there had been waiting on me to help them with a bunker project at, at Black Wolf Run. Uh, Chris Lutsky was doing that, and he wanted me to come up and show him how to do some bunkers. So I went up there and spent uh, four days with them. And it was nice to get out again, even though I drove up there, which is fine. I wasn't about to get on a plane. So those little little breaks in there kind of keep me from going stir-crazy. Uh, the worst part of the time of the year is, is in the wintertime when I can't get out and play golf. Uh, if I can't get outside, I, I really get down on myself, and I'm, I become an old grumpy guy then. No, we're really fortunate. We get to see you every year in June or July in Columbus for the Keepers of the Green golf outing, and you're always wearing the plus fours and hitting the hickory-shafted clubs. Have you, have you uh, put on any of that attire this summer? No, I haven't. It's uh, around Arkansas. If you're putting that stuff on, you know, wearing a wool coat and wool pants is just a little, a little bit too much. Uh, a couple years ago, I did some work here. Uh, I helped our uh, director of maintenance, Keith Ames. He was president of GCSA a few years ago, and and uh, he wanted to rebuild the bunkers at one of our golf courses called Scottsdale. Uh, it was a Tom Clark design originally, and he wanted to build revetted bunkers. And so we we added back bunkers that had been taken out and built the stack sod bunkers out of Perma Edge. And uh, when we had the grand opening, that it was like the first of September. The temperature was 90 degrees, and they wanted me in my plus fours and jacket and hit the first ceremonial shot with a with a hickory shafted club. So I did. It was hot, and it, it's I don't know how. Of course, you know the the Scots. It, it's not that. Hot in Scotland, they don't have that many warm days, so you can wear you could wear it over there anytime. But in Arkansas, mm -mm, not in the summer. 
I can't even imagine what an Arkansas summer is like, David. I mean, we see you in, in Columbus, and we live in Cleveland, and, and us people that live in northern Ohio consider Columbus uh, a different climate and real sultry. Uh, uh, how do you beat that heat? I mean, does, does it just wear on people when you're working and playing golf all the time down there? Well, you, you kind of get used to it. It's hard hard to say. Like yesterday, we, we played golf yesterday, and it was about – we finished at 3 o'clock. It was 95, and the humidity was probably 85%. Uh, you take a cooler of your favorite beverage out onto the golf course and you keep some kind of a towel around your neck and and try to keep your hands dry from sweating so much. But you do kind of get used to it. Uh, as I've gotten older, it's a little harder for me to handle than, than when I was younger. Of course, a lot of things are that way. But you you just get used to it. I, I do miss, because, you know, I lived in, in Dublin there for almost 20 years. I do miss uh, the summers in Ohio because they were they were so much nicer than here back then. Uh, the Ohio had an average of about 12 days a year that got above 90, but at night it would still cool off. It would get down 55 to 60 at night many nights. Here, and this causes a lot of problems for our superintendents that have bent grass greens, here there are many nights that the temperature doesn't get below 70. And that really stresses the the bent grass greens, and they have to you know pay attention to things like pythium and other fungi, and so it, it makes it tough on the golf courses as well as the golfers. There, there were many reasons why I wanted to bring you on the the podcast. I mean, you're a great storyteller, but you have one of the more fascinating careers. I know you'll probably downplay it, but you you were a late starter in the golf, comparatively speaking, to some people that work in the in the industry. You start it in ag and then progressed to becoming an NCAA Division I golf coach at a major university and then a golf course architect. Describe your career path and tell our listeners what it takes to reinvent yourself a few times over the course of a career. Well, I've, you know, I've had other people ask me that, and, and uh, what I tell people is, is I was not afraid to move in order to try to accomplish what I was wanting to do, and that, it took me a while to figure out that I wanted to be in the golf business. And uh, when, I, when I got so involved playing golf, I really got serious about playing golf every day. And one of my best friends was the golf coach at Arkansas at the time. His name was L.C. Sykes. His older brother, R.H. Sykes, had been uh, NCAA champ, played for Arkansas, was rookie of the year on the PGA Tour in either 63 or 64. So those were friends of mine. And L.C., who was the coach at Arkansas, kind of took me under his wing one year after I'd been out in the, in the chicken business and ag business for five years, and I was getting really bored with that. And he told me that uh, he saw how hard I was trying to learn the game, but I'd never had a lesson. I just went out and played. And he told me one fall that he said, I'll, I'll teach you how to play, but he said, you got to do it my way. And so we went out in, in uh, like August of 79, uh, probably, I guess it was, and uh, he was giving me lessons, and he'd only let me hit an eight iron for about six weeks. He said, we're, we're going to have to change your swing. I had one of those horrible swings. Everything was a big banana ball. Even though I could putt and get the ball in the hole, I was 15, 16 handicap. And he said, we're just going to hit, you're only allowed to hit eight irons for about six weeks. So for six weeks, three or four days a week, I'd go down there and hit balls with just an eight iron, then graduated slowly up to the, the other clubs. He actually taught me how to get the, the golf club on plane. And at the same time, you know, I got to hanging out with, with some of the guys on the golf team. And so it was, I, I met those kids. And, and the next spring, uh, and this is how I got into the, to, to being uh, the golf coach. I had actually traveled with the team to one tournament 
because Elsie didn't like traveling. He just—he was the person that didn't like to travel. So I told him I'd, I'd travel him. So I—I I took him to a, a, a tournament down in Houston, and then that next spring, Elsie um, was getting tired of being the coach, just to put it mildly, and he decided to—he decided to quit. And uh, by that time, my game had, had gotten to be a pretty good player. I played in a few tournaments around, and I knew Coach Broyles, our athletic director. And when Elsie quit. Coach Burroughs came to me and asked me if, if I'd stay with the team for that spring until they could find a coach. And I said, sure, I'll do that. So I quit my job with the company out of, actually out of Atlanta at that time. And uh, just all I did was was, uh, was act as a volunteer coach, travel the team. We went to Pinehurst. We went to other places. And Pinehurst was a very big turning point in my career, too. But uh, we had a very good spring. And the kids did well. We didn't win any tournaments, but we placed high a few times. And uh, Broyles asked me if I'd stay on as coach. And, and even though I wasn't a coach, I didn't know anything about teaching or coaching. Um, a lot of what you what what a, a college coach did back in those years was he was an administrator. He made sure the kids went to class, stayed out of trouble. I even tutored some of my kids in in, in some of their classes in algebra, and trigonometry, and calculus because I'd studied all those things. But so that's I just I became friends with with the kids on the team and that's I think that's why we did pretty well and uh, I actually re-enrolled in grad school I thought well while I'm here I might as well do something so I was I went back to grad school and actually the first all oh, the first two years that's the salary I got I was paid by the by the ag department on a on a grant instead of being paid by by the athletic department as a coach and I've started working hard recruiting. Trying to get money for us to have have clothes and bags and, and balls and things, so we'd look like a golf team. And we started. We we had a lot of fun, and uh, did did very well for a couple of years there. Yeah, can you imagine that happening in 2020? I mean, you basically went from a 15 handicapper to a Division One golf coach in a year's time. That's pretty much it. Pretty much the way it was. You look at college golf now. I mean, how much different is is that game than the game you coached in? There were, you know, there were some. You know, Oklahoma State was a great program back then. Houston was a great program, and Dave Williams was the coach back then. Dave was not a. Dave was really not a golf. He wasn't a, an instructor, a teacher, or a golfer. Either. He was an administrator and a fundraiser. Uh, back then, you know, they had Freddie Couples and Steve Elkington and Don Burwell, those guys at at at, at Houston, and uh, Oklahoma State had Scott Verplank, Bob Toy, uh, Willie Wood. Uh, you know, and there was Colin Montgomery was playing at Lamar. You know, all these, all these, they were great players back then. Uh, but a lot of those, a lot of the kids, and they still do, a lot of the kids had their own coaches. They used their, their, their teaching pro at their club, or they may have gone to some other teaching, uh, pro like Jim McLean or David Ledbetter or something like that. But, uh, it, it's changed. You know, there were a few college coaches that were real good instructors. Uh, can't remember the Duke coach's name at the time, but he was he was a good teacher. Uh, but they were out there. But a lot of them, were, you know, were they were. I won't say they were like me. They were better than I was. In any case, they were they were more of somebody that was there to to make sure the kids went to class. Uh, so it was it's it's a different world today. Today, the kids that are playing golf out here, they they their focus is to try to get on the PGA tour. And you see a lot of them right now. You know, young guys coming out like Victor Hovland. We all know the story about Hovland and Colin Markawa and Matthew Wolf just coming right out of college and playing great. 
They expect that today. The competition was great back then. We competed in the in the, the toughest region in the U.S. because there was Oklahoma, like I said, and Texas, Texas A&M, Oklahoma State, Houston, and Lamar. Uh, great schools, great schools. And we competed against those, and we held our own. We weren't great, but we held our own, had, had a, a two or three good seasons. A lot of the people in the golf industry, as you know, are, are college football fans. So you're you're doing this at the University of Arkansas unexpectedly, and your athletic director is a college football legend. What were your experiences like with Frank Royals? Well, for the most for the most part, they were good. Uh, Frank was a very intense. You know, he wanted everything to be successful there, and I, you don't you can't blame him. While you know, when uh, when I was there, Eddie Sutton was the basketball coach, and Lou Holtz was football coach. Both very successful coaches. Uh, uh, John McConnell was track and field. Nobody won more track and field championships than John McConnell. Norm DeBryan was a, was a, was the baseball coach. Good friend of mine. He still plays at the golf club where I play here in Arkansas. And you know, he took the kids to the, to the college world series. So Frank wanted everything. He was that kind of a guy. He pushed everything to be as successful as as possible. And it was there. It was there were some great years in there. You know, and, and I was fortunate to be able to. To meet people and, and hang out with people like I won't say hang out with them that's not the right word but with with Holtz and, and Sutton Sutton was was one of those guys when I would recruit kids to play golf they would always want to meet one or both of those guys and they were always very good with their time they'd give me I'd call them up and say hey I got a kid coming from Frankfort Kentucky that would like to meet you sure don't worry bring him on in We'll give him a tour of the facility. So they were always very good to me. I was, even though I felt like sometimes a little redheaded stepchild because I didn't really know what I was doing, but it made a big impression on the kids when they could see the facilities there. Our week of facilities, we didn't have a golf course that we could really call our own. We played at the club where I play now, and it's a it's a good golf course, but we didn't have the type of, of practice facilities that college, college uh, kids have today. You know, like Arkansas has one that Johnny Tyson built there at, the, at the, his course, the Blessing. The Texas A&M practice facility uh, is just fabulous, absolutely. And there's more and more and more of those around the country these years. And I think that's another reason that the college players are getting so good is they have world-class practice facilities to use. So you did this for a few years, and then you go and make the decision to enter the the golf industry on the construction and design side. How did you get your first opportunity working in golf course construction and design, and, and what led to you making that decision? Well, it, it started back, uh, the thought to get into design started when we, there used to be a college tournament at Pinehurst called the, uh, the Pinehurst Men's Intercollegiate. And when we went to play Pinehurst, it was March, it was nasty weather, and, uh, and played number two. Uh, I played with number two in a practice round with the kids. We always played together. We'd usually take five or six to, to the tournaments, and we'd go out and play, and we'd talk about how we'd play the different holes. And I never thought anything about the, the golf courses that had, had been set up for a certain reason. You had to play. You know, to me, it's like, oh, it just popped up out of the ground. It's just a golf course. Even though I did, you know, you did know that of, of people like Alistair McKenzie because of, because of uh, Augusta. And, and, and yeah, I'd heard of Donald Ross, but when, when I started to play number two, I thought, man, this is the best golf course I'd ever played, and it really was. And so I started picking up books. I picked up uh, Ron Whitten's book and a couple other books and, you know, uh, to, to see what design was. And then the other thing that happened to me was we were playing a tournament in, in Houston, down at, uh, it was called the All-American Men's Intercollegiate, goodness gracious. And this was one, you know, the article that you that, that I sent you, 
don't let the facts get in the way of a, of a good story. It would be applied to that article. But uh, we were playing there in the All-American Men's Intercollegiate at, at Bear Creek. There were two 18-hole golf courses there designed by Robert Trent Jones Sr. And uh, I was getting ready to go out and follow the kids in one of the rounds of competition, and I, and I had a golf cart that I was going to ride around. And I'd stopped uh, right by the practice putting green waiting on, on uh, my last player, probably Bob Sauerberg at the time, um, to tee off, and this older gentleman walks up to me, and he, and, uh, and he said hi, and I said hi to him, and uh, he, we kind of like, I don't remember the exact conversation, I said, I'm going out on the golf course to just drive around, would you like to go with me? Sure, so he gra- jumps in the cart with me. Lo and behold, it's Robert Trent Jones Sr., and so we we chatted as we went around, and it was, he was he was so super nice to me, you know, and, and uh, telling me about the golf course. And so that was, that was the first golf course architect that I ever met was Robert Trent Jones Sr. How, you know, how fortuitous was that? I don't know. But anyway, to get back to your question, um, the decision to, to get in the business was, was one of the kids on my golf team was from Orlando, and his father was the director of golf at Disney World, and his mom was was the head teaching professional at the Lake Buena Vista Golf Course. This young man's name was Ronnie McCann, and his father, stepfather, actually, was Phil Ritson. Phil Ritson was one of the better teaching pros in the world, top 50 in the world. Um, and I was trying to figure out how to get into design or something, figure out the route. And after I'd met Mr. Jones, I actually met Ron Garl at one time, and he said, you need, to, you need to get into construction and learn how to build golf courses, and then maybe somebody, maybe you can knock on somebody's door and they'll have a position for you. Well, Ritson was going to be involved in a project in Ocala called Golden Ocala. And he told me, I said, I want, I want to move to Florida and, and get in construction. He said, come on down here. He said, I'll make sure you get on the construction curve. And so I packed up in uh, uh, May, June of 1983. My wife was still in college at the time. She went to college late. But anyway, uh, I packed up and moved to Florida and left her in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, so we could, we'd commute. So I lived in Ocala, Florida. I lived in one half of a double-wide trailer with more cockroaches than you'll ever imagine while we were building this golf course. And I was the only person uh, on that whole crew that knew anything about golf. So I wound up running most of the golf course construction there. I learned how to, I learned how to build greens and bunkers and run every piece of equipment. Uh, didn't matter what it was. I, I wanted to learn every bit of it. I did wind up hiring a couple of shapers to help me do it because I couldn't do it. And the guys that, it, that I had on the crew, they were road builders. They weren't golf course construction people. And I hired a couple of sh- shapers, and those guys are friends to this to, to up today with me we've been lifelong friends since then and so that's where i got into it and ron garl was the golf course architect for golden ocala and we became friends and i met two of the other architects that worked for him and we all became friends and then uh, built a couple more golf courses and ron calls me and i was working on a project outside of daytona and uh, ron calls me on a thursday and he said, David, are you still wanting to get in the design business? And I said, yes. And he said, uh, can you be here at my uh, go to, ready to go to work on Monday? And I said, you betcha. So 
so that's how I, I got into it. And to, to me, I tell people this story, and you know, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world to to be a golf course architect after not having any idea that were, there were people that did that for a living. But it, to me, it was I I had the nerve or the wherewithal. I'm not sure what the word is to say yes to change my career path four different times and move to do it. Uh, and it's and it's been a great ride, has been. My wife and I, we've we've moved all over and traveled all over the world, but we've we've been married 49 years this year, and we've moved 15 times. But you have to do that sometimes in order to achieve what you want. Wow, I mean that that's really inspiring, and I, I think a lot of maybe younger people in the industry don't realize sometimes that you do have to uproot to be successful in, in the golf industry. Why were you able to adjust? What, what is it about you and your family situation that, that made you able to adjust to every situation you got put in? Well, uh, my wife and I never had any kids, and she was always supportive of everything that I ever did. And, you know, there was even when, when, uh, when I left uh, Florida to go to work for Mike Curzon, she was the um, – uh, national audit manager for a company, uh, the Anchor Glass Corporation, that has the corporate offices right by the Tampa airport. And we lived in Temple Terrace while I was working for Garl. And uh, I had I had been to the uh, uh, GCSAA show back then and sat in on one of Dr. Herdson's. This is a kind of a long story about how I met Mike and, and some other things about moving, too. But I'd, I'd, I'd uh, read some of his things about uh, Green's design theory and all this, and I sat on one of his, and I said, man, that's, that, he's one of the sharpest guys I ever heard of. And so one of, the, one of the guys, remember the shaper I told you about that had worked for me back at Golden Ocala, found out that, that uh, Dr. Herdson was looking for another architect in the firm there. So he, this contractor, Shaper, got me in touch with them, and I had an interview with Mike's partner at the Tampa airport in the Delta Crown Room in, like, February or March of 1990. And they offered me the job, said, you want to come up and, to Columbus and, you know, look around before you make up your mind? And I had already made up my mind. But anyway, I went up there and visited with everybody in the office. And I came back and I told Gene, said, I'm moving to Ohio. And said, uh, do you want to stay here and we'll commute? Because she had a great job with, with, this, uh, with this company. And the guy that owned the company, his name was Vince Namoli. Uh, Namoli was the guy that wound up owning the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Tampa Bay Rays. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so she followed me again. And I, I, to this day, I, I wonder if she had stayed there and if I'd have stayed there, would she have been the – CFO or CEO for Namoli and, and those baseball teams, and you know, but she followed me again, and that was I'm, I'm very I, I love her so much for having done that. But we've 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 had a had a great run, and we've always just not been afraid to move. Just do it if it if it's going to be better for us, and it's been better for us every time. You know, I, I've been fortunate. I've been able to spend some time with you after the Keepers of the Green Outing and Dr. Hertzen's office in Columbus, which is an amazing place. What were those 20 years like working with Dr. Hertzen, and what, what are some memories you, you have of those experiences? Well, it was, it, it was also one of those things that was a great ride, going to work with Mike and, and you know, learning from the, who I consider the smartest man in the, in the golf course design business. 
uh, you know, and, and working. When I first went to work there, one of the things that I did besides trying to run the shop there, I wound up trying to make sure all our projects got done on time. I was, I was a hard driver. I, I, was, I rode the people hard. Uh, but I, I got to work with Jack Kidwell, Mike's old partner that passed away some years ago. And Jack was one of those guys that uh, was a great player. I never got to see him play because he, he had Alzheimer's and by the, by the time, I'm sorry, Parkinson's. Uh, by the time I was there, he could still drive, but I wound up driving him to a couple of projects that he was finishing. And so I'd get to listen to, to Jack, and then as we would drive around the construction site, he would tell me why he was doing things. And Jack's golf courses were good, solid golf courses. The layouts were good. The bunkers were in the right places, but they were always low-budget golf courses. They, he was. He told people, you know, he said, I'll, we'll spend whatever you have to spend. We'll get you a golf course out there. So that was that was my first experiences there. Besides getting the other projects going, I knew we had things going in in Ohio and Florida and Canada and, and Indiana and Kentucky at that time. Just here and there in, in Maryland, I was working on a project in Maryland. But I spent a lot of time with Jack and really enjoyed that. I think that was very critical to me to, to understanding and, and learning how to route a golf course and build a golf course for a very limited budget. I'd done that with Garl, but we, it was a different. We didn't do too much in the hills of Ohio and Kentucky, where it's tougher to work. We did a lot of flat sites, and so I learned a lot from Mr. Kidwell. That, and just just hanging out with Jack was was wonderful. He'd go with us sometimes when we'd go play golf at one of his golf courses, and he couldn't play, but he'd ride around with us. And I remember him telling me, he says, "David, you know, you're 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 a good player, but he said you need to learn to hit the ball." with your practice swing. He said your practice swing's twice as good as your real swing. He was hilarious. He's a great teacher. Um, so that was, you know, Mr. Kidwell was, was, a, was a big influence on me, if, you know, from the, from the real design standpoint. Dana Fry was, was great because Dana had this ability to envision a project that was a million yards of dirt and a big budget. And that's that's totally on the other end of the extreme from what we I do with with Mr. Kidwell. So I got to to see those two different uh, ways to do golf courses, uh, like you know the the Devil's uh, Pulpit, which I wasn't involved with that, and I I was there at the last stages of it, and that uh, the Devil's Paintbrush, and the pulpit was a was a huge job. I don't remember how many million and a half yards of dirt or something like that, maybe two million, and just. Uh, a wonderful job of shaping that Dana and his contractor did there to, to be able to see that and learn from that. And then at the same time, to be involved with, with Mike Hurdson and knowing how to, to put together a set of specs and grow-in specifications so that what you give the client is something that is maintainable and they can grow the grass out there and provide the product that your client and his and his golfers or his club wanted. So those there, there's those three or four things that came together were very educational for me. I learned so much about it from, you know, even the, to the environmental standpoint. Uh, some of the jobs we had were very tough environmentally, and you really had to do a step-by-step thing with, with your biologists and your engineers so that you could get the project done. One of my one of my favorite stories, and you were asking about a story, we were doing a project over just northwest of, of Pittsburgh, not far from the airport, called Old uh, Old Stonewall. Oh, I played it with my dad last summer. And I designed yeah. that, and Dana and I did that. Probably. It was a tough piece of property. We didn't have a big piece of property to work with there. 
and the owner of it was a guy named Rick Bizdak, and uh, he'd made a buku of money in the in the uh, save uh, the home loan business. I'm, there's there's a big story there, but anyway, we were out there, and I probably shouldn't tell this story, but I will. Uh, you know, this was oh mid '90s, early '90s, somewhere in there, I guess, and. Uh, the engineer that we had for the site had a biologist and a new gal right out of college working for him, and and we had laid the golf course out there, and it's the Conoquenessing River that goes around it, and, they went, and we knew there were some floodplain areas there and probably some environmentally sensitive areas, jurisdictional areas, and we had avoided those sensitive areas with the golf holes or let them be a feature, let it be a part of a hazard, and the holes of five, six, seven, and eight were the ones that played around this wetland area, if you want to call it that. And the uh, and Vizdak called me one day and he said, you need to get over here. This this biologist from the engineering firm says you can't build those holes because those are all wetland areas. And I said, what? Well, they'd, re- they'd reviewed it and said it's all wetland. So I hopped in my car and drove over there and met them the next morning and their engineer and, and his biologist that were walking me around. And we were... And they, the eighth fairway, if you remember eighth, a dog leg left, you tee off down into a flat and then back up to a green on the left there. Yeah, the green site's uh, amazing on that hole. How yeah, it's, just, it's, it's, it's just a pocket it's, up there, yeah. It, it is. It's a, it's a wonderful hole. You know, of course, four is the, four is the par four down the, to the lake, five is the par three around the lake. Seven's the Wait par three with the maintenance castle boarding the yep, green. that's right. Right. Was that the only golf course where you incorporated the uh, the maintenance building as part of a, a design or feature? I mean, you, you come, you play the seventh hole, and you can't help but notice this castle sitting to the left. That was that was pretty much Rick Vizdak. <laughs> he 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 had a vision like that too. Yeah. But anyway, I go over to visit with the, this uh, engineer, and, and the engineer was a good guy. But this biologist, the lady, whatever whatever her title was for the firm, we were out walking where the eighth fairway was going to be, in, and she said. She said, all of this fairway is, is wetland area. And I said, how did you determine that? She said, well, I looked at the map. It's inside the floodplain. And I said, no, that's not correct. Just because it's in the floodplain does not mean it's jurisdictional. I'd been worked enough projects on, that I knew pretty much what was wetland and what wasn't. And I turned, I turned to the, our, owner, our owner at the time, Rick, and I said, Rick, you need to find, a, you need to find another engineer and a wetland specialist because this lady doesn't have a clue what she's talking about. And I said, I'm gone. And I left. <laughs> so wonder I didn't get in trouble for that one. But, <laughs> uh, but that was, you know, that was the way it was. That golf course was was tough enough to route without losing another ten or twelve acres there that we needed. And it was it definitely was not a jurisdictional area. They wound up getting a different uh, opinion, and they said, "No, it's not." And so, you know, I hope I didn't hurt that little gal's career in any way. But the the fact it was the fact. Just because it's a floodplain doesn't mean it's a wetland. So, there, you know, there's there's stories like that uh, about every project that you do out there and the people you get to work with. You know, I I worked with uh, we designed John Cook's golf course, Cook's Creek, down there south of Columbus, and it was it was a blast to work with John and Jim and Kathy and and John's mom Lida. They were just great people. And uh, when Dana was getting in the ASGCA, uh, he was. We went up to the paintbrush and the pulpit and the paintbrush because he was going to have one of his sponsors either play the 
the pulpit with him or just drive around. And so I went up there. I don't know whether we had something to do at the at the paintbrush or not. I don't remember exactly. I think that's why I went. There was something going on there. But anyway, it turned out to be a nasty cold day uh, in, like, October up there, just before the golf course was going to close. And I, I told Dana, I said, you guys go on out and go around the golf course. I'm going to sit right here in the bar and finish the master plan for John Cook's golf course. So I finished the master plan for that golf course sitting in the in the horn bar at the devil's pulpit and I was probably I was probably drinking scotch doing it. One of the things that really impresses uh me about you is just how much you know about golf history. Uh this is no exaggeration. Dr. Hertzen has thousands of golf books in his office. How many golf books do you estimate you've read and how important is understanding the history of the game to to anybody that wants to make a career career of this well i I don't know how many books that i have have read on on golf history there's it's a it's a bookcase full or more and you know and i i have a a bunch of them here at the house and and you know you have your favorites uh one of my favorites is just plain old golf architecture by alistair mckenzie (laughs) They're just such. It's one of the favorites. It's you know, a little book from 1919. Great, great read. Uh, you know, there's there, everything that's out there. Bernard Darwin, and uh, there's so many of those. Or Bernard Darwin, uh, Horace Hutchinson, some of the great authors that are out there. And what I like about it too, maybe because of my association with Keepers of the Green and having played in Scotland so many times, is that it inspires you. I guess is the right word. It inspires me to look at things a little differently and look at the golf courses and how they how they evolved. Golf courses just kind of started out. They weren't designed early on. Uh, what, Alan Robertson was the first recognized golf course architect, uh, and then old Tom Morris, and you get the other guys in there, but that was the first recognized golf course architect was back in the 1850s and 60s. Uh, and I've had the opportunity to play his golf courses and old Tom's golf courses and, and uh, just – have had a blast doing it and as i see it too there's there's golf is not a whole lot different today than it was in say 1890 the golf courses are longer the equipment's different but the equipment has changed over the years you know when they when they first went from they went from a wooden ball to a feathery to a gutta percha ball and every time they had changed something like that and into the haskell ball but, you know, the older guys were saying, oh, no, they're ruining our game. Well, we're saying the same thing right now because the golf ball's going so far and we're playing with clubs that are, are three times the size or four times the size of what, what they used to play with. And Bryson DeChambeau's hitting at 400 yards. And everybody's saying, well, we're ruining the game. Well, are we ruining the game or are we not? The pros, the pros play at a different level than we do. Uh, the average golfer out there still doesn't hit it a whole lot further than he did 25 years ago or 30. Uh, the clubs are more forgiving, so he may hit it a little straighter. I'm not sure about that because I've seen the guys I play with and how far offline they can hit it. Uh, of course, we are all we're all getting older. We don't have we're we're not quite as athletic as we used to. But that I think that's what history tells us is that we we learn from from what those those old golf courses were and what do we do. Like when Mr. Nicholas was talking this last weekend during his tournament about changing his golf course again. How many times has has Muirfield Village been changed? And he's he didn't say he was doing it to tiger-proof it or Bryson-proof it. He was just trying to once to narrow the fairways up, move the bunkers around, make them make them be a little bit more of a factor there, and still keep it 
friendly enough for his members. I'm not sure how he's going to do that. It'll be interesting to see. But that's kind of how history goes. History is history is from 1600 to last week is history now, and it's everything. It's 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 just fascinating to see how those things uh, have how it's evolved over the years. Speaking of evolution, you're one of the most knowledgeable people in the business about bunkers. Uh, this is going to be a tough one to, to put into a condensed answer, but how have bunkers evolved uh, since the late 1800s? And what are we learning about bunkers here in 2020 with some of the, the limited maintenance practices in them? Well, you know, everybody's trying to figure out a way to make, want, make the bunkers easier to maintain. Uh, next to the greens and tees, probably bunkers get, get more attention than anything else on the golf course. You know, bunkers originally probably started, uh, and there's different theories about this, uh, either er- areas that eroded on the seaside courses, either wind or maybe they'd grazed some sheep out there. And the sheep, if you ever watch a sheep get ready to lay down, they walk in little circles until they round and round in circles until they decide to lay down. If they did that enough in, in one spot, they would wear the spot out, and sand would pop up, and there was a bunker that had all of a sudden shown up. And then over the years, the, the bunkers that were added to golf courses as hazards were trying to mimic those natural ones. They might have a little crest on the top of it where the wind had blown it and made it look like a wave, the crest of a wave. So uh, architects decided to mimic that. I tried to do some research uh, no, a couple of years ago when we were doing the revetted bunkers on when the first revetted bunker showed up, a stack sod bunker. And whether it showed up at Muirfield in Scotland or St. Andrews or somewhere else, nobody really knows, but they showed up somewhere in the late 1800s. And the reason I was, at, was doing that is because I'd started building some revetted bunkers here in the States, and I've, you know, I've worked on projects for different architects even. Uh, to, because they want to know how, and, and I'm one of the half a dozen people here in the U.S. that knows how to build a revetted bunker and get it to last. And it was just, that's kind of by accident. Uh, and, and, I mean, this goes back to the maintenance. A, a, a revetted face bunker, you don't have to worry about the sand uh, washing off that face or blowing off the face because it's revetted. And uh, it happened at Fieldstone, a golf course that I designed with, with Dana Fry over in Wilmington, Delaware. We had a, a dozen, I guess, revetted face bunkers there on, on holes 3, 11, 12, 4, 18, uh, 16. There, but there weren't many of them. And uh, one of them was uh, on the middle of the 18th fairway. Actually, 18's a par 5 that plays uphill. And uh, um, this big bunker, eight eight and a half foot high face bunker, is between your drive and the second landing area. And they were having to rebuild this bunker every two years at a cost of about uh, two to three years at a cost of eleven to twelve thousand dollars. And that's the superintendent called me and he said, "I found this material that we can build bunkers out of. It's artificial turf." I said, "I'll be there." So. Uh, I showed up. He showed me what we were going to do. We hired Southeastern Golf to come up and do it because they had they had done some of these, and since then we've been rebuilding them. And, and it cost us about twenty two thousand dollars to rebuild that bunker, but it's guaranteed for ten years. That's been six or seven years ago now that we built that one, and it looks today just like it did then. Max, it may actually look a little better because it's got a little moss growing on it, but that's a maintenance and a time saver there. Uh, other things that have been done over the years is, is uh, you know, we've got all these new high-tech bunker liners. And it's just, 
it's something that you do based on what kind of bunkers you have there and how much the the uh, client may want to spend. In the last uh, two or three years, I've done several bunker renovation projects. I did one, uh, redid all the bunkers at uh, the quarry course at Black Diamond Ranch down in Florida. Uh, you know, we spent well over a million dollars there to redo all those bunkers that that they had evolved over the years, or devolved might be the right word, because they had been washed out and had all kinds of problems with them. They'd used different types of liners in them. So we rebuilt all of them, and we also reshaped around the bunkers so not as not enough so that less water would go over the lip and wash the sand off the face. That's the key to maintaining a bunker. It doesn't matter what kind of bunker liner system you've got in there. If water comes over the top of that bunker and down the face, it's going to wash off. You can spend any of the high-tech ones. It's not going to work. So we, we did that, did the same thing in Atlanta, uh, the last project I did before this uh, pandemic hit us, uh, uh, Greg Norman Golf Course in Atlanta, the same thing. It was, on, But it was only 16 years old as opposed to 30 years old, and they had the similar problems. So we fixed it the same way. We reshaped it and rebuilt them. And now the the members, they just they just love it. Uh, and, uh, you know, and the superintendent does too because uh, at Flag Diamond, for example, they had 180,000 square feet of bunkers on one golf course. That's four acres and a half. And they'd have a, a, a major storm there, as is common in Florida and Central Florida, because that's about an hour and a half north of Tampa. It would take it would take the grounds crew there two days to get the bunkers back in shape after after a storm like that. Now, when they have a two inch hard rain like that, two guys go out and they fix little erosions, and they're done in one morning with just two guys. So that's the thing that that's you know the evolution of the bunkers. Uh, and the way that we build them, line them, and and save on labor, you know that they that kind of a liner system will pay for itself in a few years. So that that's that's where we've gone with bunkers, you know, from from a, a bunker that would just happen to be there because a the sheep wallowed it out to we're putting bunkers out there. We're trying to mimic different things out there, and uh, you know, my well, some of my favorite bunkering in the world is Robert Trent Jones Sr. His bunkers were wonderful because. He believed in having great big bunkers, and big bunkers make a, a great visual statement out there. You know, when you're 400 yards away, it doesn't look like a very big bunker, but when you get there and that thing's six feet deep and it's 80 feet across, but it was very visual, and that's what you're, that's what he was after. I, I always enjoyed playing his golf courses and seeing his bunkers. Last thing here, David, before we let, let you go, how glad are you that you left ag sales to go into golf? I'm not sure there's an adequate word to describe how happy I was about that. Uh, it was, it was, it was a, it was a, it wasn't a tough decision to make, but it was a scary one because uh, you know I was making good money back in the, in the late '70s doing stuff like that and and working with nutritionists and uh, and I have it, but it was not satisfying. I had to do something different, so I was extremely happy and and you know when when. Coach Burles made me the golf coach at Arkansas. I was the happiest guy in the world. I was the happiest guy in the world again when I moved to Ocala to go into construction. I was super happy when Ron Garl hired me to, 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 to work for him as an associate, an apprentice, if you want to call it that. And then I was even happier than that when I got to work uh, with Mike Hurds in there and, and Columbus for all those years. It's, it's been a, a fabulous ride. 
Well, this was even more fun than I imagined. David, thanks for taking the time to join us. I didn't think I could talk to many people on the podcast who love golf more than I do, but I might have found my, uh, my match here. So uh, thanks a lot for the time, and best of luck with what awaits for you. Thanks, Guy. I really appreciate it. Anytime, we'll be happy to chat again.